some folks that have worked with myself for a long time or that I know in the profession for a long time that have gone from a technician or even before that, and now we're in pretty significant management positions and even running high levels of these companies. to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. Our guest today is Dr. Jeff Rothstein. He is a veterinarian and the founder of Mission Veterinary Partners, which operates more than 320 practices across the U.S. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on this Friday afternoon. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for being here. Well, first of all, it's Mission Veterinary Partners, and I'm probably going to be referring it to as MVP. I don't want to confuse people on the podcast. So uh, as a practice owner and founder of MVP, can you talk about the evolution of corporate medicine? Yes, it is a favorite topic of mine, and I do want to share as we spend the next hour or so together and answer you know, a number of your questions that over my almost 30 years in practice and, you know, more years than that kind of involved in the profession, certainly have a lot of my own ideas and philosophies. A few might be a little controversial. So I wanted to say those are my personal views and not necessarily that of MVP as you refer to. So I, I don't want to speak totally for the organization, but for myself. But the evolution, when I was in veterinary school and I'm a 94 graduate, I had interest in certainly, I don't want to say corporate medicine, but multi-practice ownership and kind of the benefits of that. And so when we look at the evolution, at that time, you actually had VCA, Veterinary Centers of America, that started with their first practice purchases in about 1985. And then along came Scott Campbell and Banfield right around 1990-ish. And so really that footprint of group medicine or corporate medicine, however you want to refer to it, uh, maybe now a lot of people say consolidators, those were the roots of it and some pioneers in group ownership. And those are folks that I know fairly well, Scott Campbell and some of the gentlemen that started VCA. Visionaries in a lot of ways. I do recall speaking at like the student Sadma symposium and Banfield was doing some type of presentation and there would be students outside the auditorium or where the presentation was being given that were protesting. So there was a lot of anti-corporate ownership from really from the students, never mind the practice owners. And if you look at how it evolved over time, it was pretty darn slow. VetCorp came into the scene, I don't know what year, but that was another player in group ownership. But up until really around 2000, almost 15, there was only about 5 or 10% of the market that was owned by group practices. And so I did a piece just a couple of years ago already but it looked at about 4,000 out of 30,000 veterinary practices. So only about, I think at that time, 13% ownership. So in this last five years or so, group ownership has become certainly more prevalent. And why is that? Is one, the Great Recession. 
we did really well in the veterinary profession compared to the rest of the business world or a lot of the business world. So we like to say that veterinary medicine or practice, it's not recession proof, but recession resistant. That raised the eyebrows of the corporate world and investors. And when Banfield, the Mars family, they've been in the business for a while because they were involved with Banfield, but when they bought Blue Pearl, and let's say that's maybe 2015-ish, you know, maybe the year or two before that, all of a sudden, I think a lot of these private equity companies were like, wait, you know, maybe they're onto something. And so they discovered, wow, this is a profession that is really independent, a lot of mod pops. And so it was like a new frontier to a lot of, I will say the word consolidators that were like, wow, you know, there's a, a lot of rolling up we can do. And they looked at, again, how independent we were. And so compared to dentistry or physical therapy, we might have been in the second or third inning, as they talk about in the private equity world. And then along came COVID, and that just, you know, raised our stock even that much more, where veterinary practices kind of excelled during that time period, or at least the demand for veterinary services certainly excelled. And so you really had the number of groups buying clinics go anywhere from 30 to 40, 50 to 60 groups. Just to keep it short here, while about 20% of the market probably out of those 30,000 practices, so we're probably pushing, you know, 5,500, 6,000, the reality is a lot of those bigger practices are owned by groups and they make, I don't want to say control, but they may account for anywhere nearly 50% of the transactions or revenue or appointments. So it's gone pretty mainstream, and I can go on and on about, you know, the difference of trying to hire a vet to a corporate group 10 or 20 years ago or 10 years ago versus now. And also, was it taboo to sell to a veterinary group or consolidator? And, you know, that attitude has changed a lot, too. So I think when you look at the runway, are we done yet? I think there's still a lot more that we'll see as far as practices merging and being bought by groups. There's still a lot of demand. And so I don't see that stopping Europe. Some of the countries, I was shocked, it could be like 85% group ownership. So that's kind of the history from my standpoint. I'm sure along the line here, you'll ask me some of the pros and cons of that. But that's what I look at from an evolution standpoint. And something that I was interested in pretty much from the day I got into practice. And again, I'll share some of the, the reasons why as we go along. Thanks so much for sharing that background with us. And so diving more into practice ownership, we see vets out there who are interested in becoming practice owners, but they may not want to go straight from being an associate to owning all or most of a practice. What options are out there for practice ownership outside of the traditional model? It's a great question, and I'm a big fan of practice ownership, and I do a little talk on practice ownership the next decade, dead or alive. So I don't think it's dead by any means. I think there's still probably that, whatever it is, 25% of veterans that still think about ownership and maybe being a little sad that they're being told that you can't have ownership. So opportunities that I see are one, when you get into groups like our own and I imagine others, I think what we're going to see is that new graduates or not so new graduates will get some good training and training in leadership 
And when they develop their veterinary skills and their leadership skills, that becomes a real natural in terms of being able to partner with a group. And let's say, all right, we want to open up a new practice in Phoenix area. We see a need for it. Okay, you've excelled with our group. You've shown interest or really said that you want to be involved in ownership. So we will use you to start up that practice and give you some sweat equity in terms of ownership. So you don't have the finance worry as far as that. and You don't really have as much of a risk concern as well. That, I think, becomes somewhat prevalent. Also, is it hard to open a veterinary practice right now? And we can expand on it. But when you see the demand for services, I think if you've gone out and developed your skills and are very confident and we can get into a lot of the you know, risk concerns and personality types, but not necessarily a hard time to open a veterinary practice either. And I think that interest when you look at the VBMA groups and so on is like, hey, you know what? I see there's a lot of interest in buying veterinary practices that are selling for pretty good dollars. So, you know, it looks like a pretty good business, you know, from that standpoint. So I think we'll see a lot of different aspects of ownership. And just as a third one is there's a lot of practices that are under the radar of groups in terms of maybe wanting to purchase. And so they may be in a sweet spot size-wise. Maybe it's 500000 700000 you know, maybe even under a million, where if you've got a good skill set as a veterinarian and you're very comfortable with those veterinary skills, you've got the mindset to be in ownership, you can potentially get a very good purchase price on those and not have to go through the startup. I personally was always buying, you know, going ventures and had positive cash flow right away. So those can be less risky. Back in the day, and I'm just dealing with somebody that I did a land contract with when I started out, land contracts were more common. So I think if you find a veterinarian that doesn't have a buyer necessarily, you may be able to, you know, it's not that hard to get bank financing, but it might also be compelling to have a seller do some of the financing of that practice for you. So I see a lot of opportunities. Awesome. I actually want to talk a little bit more about sweat equity. I have heard of that before, but usually you expect to have some financial investment on the company. But Mm -hmm. if I tell you and I demonstrate it to you, let's say I have five years of experience, you know, I've been a good veterinarian. How do I go about, you know, in both sides as far as what can I offer to you? And what do you think is a fair ownership percentage of a clinic if you would say I will put all the money down and you're the full-time vet you're going to be 15% owner you know just an example sure how, how do you go about that yeah I think there's a lot of examples of it one is again I will take you know possibly a larger group like that I'm involved with and it may be you know what you started with us as a new grad you went through mentoring and leadership training with us you've displayed, you know, all the skills that we see that make us owner successful. And maybe when you even signed on, you said, hey, I want to go with a group like yours because there's ownership opportunities. And so what I see developing is that opportunity to potentially go into a new practice at DeNovo and basically start that from scratch. And that you know, for some veterinarians, it's tough. You know, we're used to being busy right off the bat. So it takes a certain mindset to have, you know, that patience to let a practice build up and so on. 
But anyway, if you put in that, like you said, sweat equity to me is you're not putting in a lot of money and you're earning a percentage of that business. So it may be as much as up to like 25% over a five-year period. So not a bad deal if you are able to, I mean, most hospitals, de novos that are being built now are pretty darn nice state-of-the-art, you know, facilities, which can cost hundreds of thousands or a million dollars to build. That can be a great relationship, again, maybe having started from your day as a new grad up to some ownership opportunities. And so definitely a model there. There's other groups that, again, and we haven't talked supply and demand yet, but the demand is for veterinary services or veterinarians is really high. So I see other groups that may say, hey, you know what, we're in growth mode. We need somebody to run, you know, this practice, it's uh, location eight or 10 for us, whatever. And we're willing to, you know, you come here and help us grow it. Maybe we're going to give you 5% sweat equity each year. So I'm seeing that much more common as an enticement to join a practice. And I think it's sometimes a little hard if you don't have that relationship already. So to me, it's easier if you've worked for someone for three to five years, as opposed to saying, all right. Looks like you got a great resume. I'm sure you're going to be a great team member. Come here and we're going to build this thing together. It may work out great, but it's a little more tenuous. And I think you don't know for sure. So I'm more in favor of, hey, work a few years. Let's get to know each other. And then here's a model that we can do. And it, it might even be you go in and you know, have some type of profit share initially with that option to you know, have ownership after two or three years if things are working well. But I do see some groups taking that plunge right off the bat because they are very anxious to go out their group of practices. Awesome. Thank you. So you clearly love your business side of things and <laughs> you do have a DVM and an MBA. How did you decide to pursue the business side of veterinary medicine? Sure. I'll make a long story short because <laughs> um, I could do a segue on my, you know, long and winding road in veterinary medicine. But in short, I was concerned about one compensation and I had, you know, I'm a realist and I mean, I was realistic about it, I think, from the get go. And I think sometimes we want to be so idealistic with our new grads and so on. But to me, there was an economic choice of going into the profession. I was involved with a lot of folks at high school buddies and stuff. They were all going into human medicine. I wanted to do something similar because I really liked the science and medicine intellectually. So I wasn't sold on human medicine, but I realized I might take a pay cut going into veterinary medicine. And so basically, I had to think long and hard about it. But Colorado State turned out to be a great place for me because they had a tracking program and they allowed you to take other classes or they wanted you to take other classes and just veterinary classes. And so if you weren't doing large animal, which was my case, I didn't have to take a lot of those classes. I was able to go, in my case, take business classes, but they'd say, go take a Spanish class or history class. Fortunately for me, the business school was right next to the veterinary school. And so I, from the get-go, kind of did this joint DVM MBA program. And I was really looking at it for business solutions for the veterinary profession. So one, yeah, for me, but really I looked at the veterinary model as like, wow, there's some really great business opportunities and we need help on the practice management front of managing hospitals. So doctors and the team can practice medicines and other people can run the business. So 
I was very attracted to that and the benefits of multi-hospital ownership. So for me, it was, I don't know if I can do it just purely as a veterinarian. I want to really look at the business opportunities as well. Awesome. All right. And so certainly this being a financial podcast, we end up talking about investing sometimes. And when we do, people often talk about risk tolerance. What kind of risk tolerance do you need to become a practice owner? I think one, and I talked about the VBMA club. So at least you have some people, I'd say intellectually, that are looking at being a business owner. And there's probably certainly 10 or 20% of the veterinary population that are, I'm going to say, just really geared towards being owners. You know, it's not like just because you pick medicine, you don't have a business side. So I do some articles on this as far as going into practice ownership. And I think there's almost a checklist of things you need to do before we get to the risk part, you have to make sure it's a good fit for your lifestyle. So if you have a partner and a family, are they behind you? It also could be your parents and siblings, all that. You want to make sure you have, I think, a lot of support from folks because you're going to be busy and running the business. And so if you don't have that, you know, it may not be a great fit. But then on an individual basis, there's a lot of questions to ask yourself and risk is one of them. It may seem glamorous to be that business owner to some, but you almost, you know, like you go to marriage counseling before you get married or something. I think it's really important to go through those hoops and ask a lot of significant questions to make sure that you're really game for it because you have to be able to deal with that adversity and stress that comes with it. And you have to be willing to put in a lot of time and effort. So does that mean that possibly you're going to miss some kid events or, you know, social events? Potentially, yes. So I think once you clear the hoops with those things and you're a good fit, the risk part of it, I mean, it's a pretty darn good business. And so I think it's not that risky if you, you know, do your homework. And like I said, you know, I always bought a successful practice. And so I knew, all right, it's in a good location. It's got positive cash flow. A lot of times I was getting financing from an owner. So they had some skin in the game and wanted you to succeed. And then when you look at the banks, they love veterinarians. And so that to me says it's not that risky and nothing against dentists. But as when I was dealing with these banks, they're like, we would much rather loan to the veterinarians that are so down to earth, you know, they're take a pay cut basically to make sure the business is cash flowing and everybody's getting paid. Where the analogy with the dentist, and again, it's no disrespect, is they may be more interested in going out and getting a nice car and house and stuff, and they're much more likely to default on a loan. So if you just want to look on the risk factor, the success of veterinary hospitals is very, very strong. I think it's more that risk of your just your personality, you know, are you in it for the long haul and does it suit your personality? On the note of positive cash flow, as an owner, it is important to monitor your expenses. What are some unnecessary expenses in vet hospitals? One of the things that I think is really important, and we say that we don't learn enough business in veterinary school and so on, and veterinarians aren't good business people. So I really think there's a lot of very good veterinarians that are good business people. And some of them just found out by default because in the past, you know, a lot of people just own practices. 
looking at the P&L statement is one thing that I would say a lot of veterans don't do. So if you don't understand your profit or loss, then it's really hard to know what expenses are inappropriate. And what I developed basically was just a really good tracking system. So what I knew was that, you know, most of my expenses, you know, were in a few categories. So cost of goods, so all those inventory items, as well as your staff payroll, you know, are areas that we can control. In the old day, they would say, don't worry about your expenses that fall into place, just grow your practice. So I don't really agree so much with that. I think there's a lot of expenses that we can control. And so I'm looking at, you know, some things like rent can really have a big impact on your profit. You may not be able to control that. But when you go into potentially a lease or buy a facility, it's good to know that ahead of time because you can't control it. But there's other things like payroll. I remember in my first few practices, go in, maybe do a shift or visit. And I'd be looking around and it's like, boy, you know, people seem pretty busy, but those 15 minute smoking breaks, you know, were pretty common. And so then I started looking at payroll. I'm like, why is this clinic at, you know, 26 or 27% and another one's at 22%. And so very quickly, I could go to the manager and say, hey, we need to keep our payroll at, at this certain range. And we found that there was a lot of fluff. And so managing that's really important. But I found all of a sudden that I'd lost thousands of dollars in payroll and I could never get that back, at least with inventory. You know, it's nice to keep mean and lean inventory. And yes, some could get lost or outdated, whatever. But at least you still have it, you know, and you can peer it down. But payroll, if you end up wasting payroll, you can't get that back. So that's an important one. Understanding your cost of goods sold. So how much are you paying for your inventory is important. And, you know, are there too many items that you just have on the shelves that you're not using? So, yeah, there's, a you know, probably a dozen different ear medications now. So going to the team and saying, all right, let's carry two or three is significant. So we don't tie up a lot of inventory that's just sitting on the shelves and looking at that cost of goods sold and making sure that, again, we're kind of keeping that in line. I'd want to budget on that as well. There's some things that aren't 100% expenses, but impact the bottom line are things that we're not charging for. So it could certainly be mischarges, which is really easy. And then I like to say the other mischarges are things we should charge for, but are not. So for whatever reason, you know, when we do an ear cytology, we clean the ears, but we don't charge for it or, you know, things like that which, you know, when you start doing an estimate, let's say for surgery and that type of procedures is, do we have in there a charge for the surgery pack? Do we have nursing time in there? So there's a lot of things that we do and maybe didn't think of charging for. And so a good model sometimes is you look at an invoice from a specialist and they're usually really good as far as what we should be charging for. So that's big. And then just checking your prices. I mean, there's a lot of times that you're going to find that, wow, we're just charging 85 bucks for anesthesia for an hour. But when I look at maybe it's the AHA pricing guard and the average is $130. So there's a lot of things in there that I think aren't exactly an expense, but would cut our expenses if we are taking advantage of things that we should be adding to our revenue. All right. Excellent. And so when we're thinking about hospitals and thinking about expenses and payroll, 
Is there any rule of thumb as to when you should hire a practice manager? I've heard several, but wanted to get your take on it. Sure. One of the big mistakes that I look at is a lot of times hospitals that don't have a practice manager. And I think it's a size thing. I used to have an issue with some of the, I'd say, practice management that was like a practice manager should make, you know, 4% of this million dollar hospital or $2 million hospital. But not all practice managers are created equally. So we use the term kind of loosely. I like to think of, you know, in the beginning stages that you have an office manager more than a practice manager. And so I think even when you start out and you're three, four, five team members, it's important to have that head person. Back in the early days, I had a management group come around. It's called Hollander and Associates. I think they're still around. They were actually, interestingly, a offshoot of the Church of Scientology. And if you really look at the model, they're kind of a business model as well as religion. So they had a whole management platform that was very big for dental and veterinarians. And I don't know if it was a ploy to get people into the Church of Scientology, but it was a big part of their platform. So anyway, they really promoted to be a successful practice, you needed that practice manager. And so I think as you look at revenue and, you know, your increase in number of team members, that becomes a vital position. And I think you grow from office manager to practice manager when you're, you know, maybe it's a two, three doctor million, million and a half dollar practice. Again, I politely, maybe you call the practice manager at an earlier phase, but I think sometimes people get a wrong impression of what those responsibilities are and what that compensation should be. But I think it's vital for a hospital to not have me or you, you know, as an owner become that practice manager because, you know, we should be prescribing, doing surgery and diagnosing and not spending our time on those aspects. Now, in a higher leadership role, yes, you want a close relationship with that person as a lead doctor and, you know, obviously strategizing and planning. Yes, but practices run a lot smoother when you have that head person not being the doctor. And when you go to sell your practice, there's really a premium paid for having a strong practice manager. And it's a really big change sometimes when a seller all of a sudden has to hand all over those chores to the practice manager. And sometimes practice managers are overwhelmed. But that really is a good sign of what a practice manager should be doing. They should be doing the management. And so Important role, and I think you can kind of slice and dice the terms, but I think, you know, as you increase in size and revenue, getting that person or evolving into a practice manager pretty quickly is important. In one of your blogs, you mentioned that the most important benefits that hospital networks offer are new career opportunities and professional growth. Could you tell us a little bit more about these opportunities? Yes, happy to. And I will say that one of the drains of veterinarians is due to that as well. So when you start getting eight or 10 hospitals, you tend to need an operations manager or a medical director over that territory. And so who gets into that role? Well, maybe it's one of your top practice managers who are just, you know, talking about all of a sudden goes from practice manager to operations manager. 
and maybe you end up having a lead technician. So that happens and you take one of your doctors now who is over and sometimes it could be an owner in this scenario. But a lot of times if you take that part of like 10 hospitals and now you have a group that's 20 hospitals, that number of 10 to 12 seems to be about, you know, a good management size. And so now you then evolve into, okay, we've got a medical lead overseeing that. So again, that might be a doctor that just had a real interest in management and maybe has practiced for 15 years and is ready to do something a little bit different or or maybe not. Maybe it's somebody younger that just had, you know, that interest. But now they're rising to another level. Now let's take 50 hospitals and you then, you know, notch it up another level or two where, okay, maybe we need a regional medical director and maybe we need a regional operations person. And you could kind of look at Bienfield as initially when they had seven, 800 hospitals and I had a group of Bienfields that I had franchised. They had a nice organizational structure, I think, from borrowing from Mars because they took a lot of their business systems. But what I see is all these different opportunities developing. We've taken certain technicians that were really savvy and they might work on the PIM systems for us getting common codes. And then they might even work in marketing. And then you could have someone that's really good at the front desk that now is involved in training of, you know, the support staff. So it really creates a lot of new opportunities. I think probably one of the biggest reasons that I liked multiple practice ownership and now group ownership. And I've seen some folks that have worked with myself for a long time or that I know in the profession for a long time that have gone from a technician or even before that, and now are in pretty significant management positions and even running high levels of these companies. So that was not happening before. And so going from whatever $15, $20 an hour position to something that's six-figure plus, I think is really significant. But it's also, I just think, professional development for individuals. We want to grow. And so I think, again, all levels of the team have that opportunity, but I've seen a lot of doctors really grow to positions that they had no idea that they might be interested and excel at. Those are great examples. And, you know, one thing you talk about this companies owning hundreds of clinics, they clearly need to hire veterinarians to run those clinics. You know, I work in academia. I see a lot of new grads getting a lot of offers. But one of the focuses is they always are asking for mentorship. You know, what is the mentorship in that clinic? And how is mentorship being offered in your practices? And second question to that is, are there written programs for that mentorship? Sure. Probably the biggest thing that new grads want to mention is mentorship. And again, I don't want to tout too much my initial interest in group practice. But to me, again, that was at the heart of it because one, and I like this Beatles song stuck inside these four walls, never <laughs> seeing anything. Um, that's what it would feel like to me. One is being a kind of social person. I don't want to get locked in one place for a lot, a lot of years. But what it meant is if we had eight or 10 hospitals, I kind of like this demographic clustering model. Gosh, I could go spend some time in location B with Dr. C, who's kind of specialized in dentistry. And I can go spend some time in another practice that's got an orthopedic person. And I can just see how different hospitals flow. 
So from the get-go, that to me was a real benefit. But today, we don't have traditionally the typical internship residency type you know, scenario for the general practitioner anyway. And so this mentorship by our hospitals is really significant. And I think as a candidate looks at that mentorship, they need to explore very closely what does that mean, as you mentioned. And there's a couple parts to it to me is what are your interests? So you want to customize to me the mentorship program. You know, what are your interests? So we can focus on that. And what is significant? How can we help you become the best veterinarian that you can be? And so there are some core skills, I think, that are really important you know, how you communicate in an exam room, making sure you've got some proficiency in some of the, uh, I'm going to say, routine or basic surgeries we do is going to serve you well. And so, I mean, if you saw a spay done once or twice, you did a couple of them in school, but, you know, if you can go with a top person or sometimes a group where they've really looked at, okay, here's the most important steps to a successful spay. And if you're doing that, you know what, you're probably going to do that in 30 minutes versus 45 minutes. So just seeing the right way to do things and the best practices is huge. It's one thing you interview when clinic says, okay, yes, I love to mentor you and stuff. But if they're too busy to do it, that doesn't do you any good too. So it's important to designate people as teachers and mentors within the practice that are really going to take that time to do it. And so I think you build a reputation as having good mentorship. And that could be an individual hospital as well. But the idea to me is we want to teach you to fish and not fish for you. And so it becomes really important in terms of someone's success in veterinary medicine. At the end of the day, and we're talking financial, you do have to earn your keep. And so when we can teach new graduates to produce $700,000, $800,000 within the course of first year, sometimes we're seeing that they're able to outproduce somebody that's been practicing for 10 or 15 years. So the mentorship has a huge bearing, I think, on ultimately your compensation and satisfaction in practice. Um, So it's really vital, and it's the missing link that the schools really aren't going to be able to provide, and we don't have another system. So mentorship at the practice level, you know, really important. And for the individual practice, I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, there's obviously a lot of CE virtual things that are really significant. When I was at Banfield, they had us called Smart Help. I think they still have something similar. But in their case, I think they mandated, hey, we need you to take this one-hour lecture on anesthesia. We need you to watch this video on whatever. It could be safety in the practice. But it was, you know, fairly comprehensive. So I think you can build that into your system. But I think you also have to pay attention to having someone that truly is a mentor for that person to meet with, look at your goals, and to also meet the needs of that, you know, veterinarian as well. What are your interests? So it's kind of a two-part play to me. I agree with that. Thank you. And so going beyond mentorship a little bit, what about continued professional growth in associates? So associates who don't necessarily want to be practice owners, what are your thoughts on the practice encouraging professional growth for them? I think it's important. We think a lot about financial planning 
and okay, maybe go to your financial planner, you know, once a year, even though as a profession, we're not, you know, not necessarily think as much about these business things. But I think that's just for all walks of professions and stuff. Hey, that's a good idea. Get a financial planner, meet with them once a year. I think we need to really engage in a similar thing for ourselves as veterinarians and other team members. And, you know, you do an annual review. I like to think that we're our own business on our own. And even when we talk about, you know, ownership of a practice, we really are kind of our own business in a sense. And in that planning, I think it's, you know, where am I? What have I achieved in the past year? And I'd also like to, you know, have a three and five year plan. So maybe it is meeting with a veterinary coach or some of the veterinary groups may have, you know, something built in like that. So you're meeting with a medical director and hey, this is what you wanted to accomplish during the year. And I'm not talking about meeting the goals of the practice, but your own goals. You know, I wanted to develop these certain skills. There's tremendous opportunities in the profession. Obviously, we look at, you know, kind of what the three of us are doing and, and what you can do with the veterinary background. I think you want to avoid certainly the burnout. And part of that, I think, is let's be really proactive and say, hey, you know, I got a five-year plan. Maybe that's ownership. Maybe it's starting a podcast. Maybe it's, you know, doing any number of things that I want to be doing orthopedic surgery in five years, but you have these stop gaps. And so you really need that, uh, I think, built into the system just individually. And so I like to think about these veterinary coaches that are out there and can really sit down with you and say, okay, yeah, you know, on the one hand, yeah, you did your 401k contributions and we're looking at, you know, how you're doing, you know, in terms of retirement, but how are you doing in terms of career fulfillment? And that can change too. You know, that's why that one year look to me is really important. I think we'd be a lot happier if we were in that mode, you know, yeah, strategic planning for the business, but strategic planning for yourself as well. Great answer. Yeah. So, you know, again, we were talking about earlier about new grads receiving plenty of offers as compared to when I graduated. And so uh, hospitals are getting very creative when it comes to the compensation package. So other than offering, you know, of course, increasing the salary or whatnot, what key benefits a practice can offer to stand out among other employers? Sure. I think a lot of these benefits are kind of what would you have as a gold standard for another company? Let's say it's outside of veterinary medicine, right? So I think the groups and individual practices try to mimic those and kind of be world-class organizations. So you can differentiate yourself a little bit, certainly as you start to get into some more maternity leave are things that are important. I think, you know, if you're an individual hospital going to your team or your veterinarian and saying, what are the things that matter to you? Because we're going to form a compensation statement, right? So total compensation, what does that look like? Some of it's about money some of it not. Like an employee assistance program is something that I see that's really helpful. So we're not going to necessarily pay for you to go to a social worker or a psychologist, you know, whatever. But these type of programs have those services kind of built in and they can be 24-7. They can be virtual. I actually just had this strange encounter where I spent about a half hour doing wine tasting with Michael Phelps. <laughs> he was in for uh, University of Michigan. He was a captain of the football team for a day because he used to go to school here. So just a chance encounter. But he's really big on psychologic health. 
And a lot of that you see them on TV now, you know, advertising for some of these, you know, more virtual psychology counseling programs. So that I think is significant because there's a lot of programs that you can opt into that are not okay, you know, I'm paying specifically for that, but you can offer that as a benefit to the team. I think, you know, I'm a big one as far as fitness is really important. So in some cases, you know, I've been to clinics where there's a gym nearby and sometimes those practices will pay for a membership to that. We're looking at a thing called LulaFit that MVP does is a more of a virtual type of program. But there's a lot of different ways to support, I think, team wellness. And, you know, those are some examples that certainly can work. And then, again, I think it's what is important to your particular team members for the benefits. It's easier to do that on an individual hospital basis versus a group. I think because it is very competitive, the hospital networks have to be, I think, kind of gold standard. And we can talk about a 401k, obviously, is big. There's a difference between a group that has a 401k and one that does a 4 or 5% match. And I think, you know, for me, if I'm looking for a job, I'm going to be really careful in terms of, hey, let me look at those benefits and what it might mean. And it sometimes says a lot about an organization. I think when we got involved, some of the other organizations had 401ks, but they didn't do a match. You know, we do you know, up to a 4% match. That may not be totally uncommon, but not all benefits, as you say, are the same. So I think do your research, look at a group that's proactive and it's going to meet your needs. And a lot of times in the supply and demand market, you can carve out that niche to get something that makes sense to you. And it might even be, I'll take a little less pay if I can have these benefits. Lots of great examples there. Yeah, I appreciate that answer. The whole idea of asking your staff, what do you need? You know, what can I bring to the table that will help you? That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it makes a big difference. I, you know, very simply, and I used to, you know, offer my crew, I'd say, all right, who can spout out for our, our mission statement? And I had a really simple was provide the best customer care, best medicine in a fun and profitable environment and profitable for all. But the fun part to me was not just fun and games, but if your people aren't happy, then you're not doing the best medicine. And as our goal as veterinarians is always that best medicine that we can do for the pet. So finding that piece, and that's kind of how I think for MVP, that idea of being the employer of choice and your most important person at our level is your team. So finding out what motivates and just kind of ties into the whole benefit aspect as well. So Willie has mentioned a couple of times just how competitive the job market is right now. And so what are your thoughts on recruiting staff and then also retaining staff in the current market? It is a big challenge, no doubt. It's a big challenge for independents. And sometimes I think it's not a level playing field with the groups. That's not totally true because a lot of people like working in that independent hospital environment as well. It comes down to, I think, a culture is really big. So pay, as we know, isn't everything. So you need competitive pay. I think there's no doubt about that. But I think it's also the culture you create and the leadership that you have. I mean, I talk about, you know, how do we keep it fun? You know, our people arguably whether it's doctors or staff, in a lot of ways are underpaid. So we need to make sure that people are appreciated. And I think that culture really wears off in terms of how you show them that you care for them and for your clients, I think is really big. 
And so if you click well, you know, where that team realizes that you're on their side and on the client side and that your goals are for good medicine and just being a good operator. And a lot of that's, I think, being consistent and transparent. That makes a really big difference. It doesn't mean that it's easy to uh, attract and retain people, but it really cuts down on turnover. And so I mentioned in the beginning, one of my goals was to, you know, make sure that the team got to do medicine and we focused on the management part. So I think well-run hospitals is really significant as opposed to potentially a dysfunctional hospital. So got to have harmony in that workplace. So you clearly have a lot of ideas and have offered a lot of resources. I've read several of your blogs and I really enjoy them. So what is the best way for our colleagues to get in touch with you? I'd say the good old you know, email is the really probably the easiest way. And I'm you know, even with clients for me, I was not shy about sharing my cell phone number. And that was... Um, I understand people want to protect their privacy, and so there's good ways to do that now where you can give someone a number that's not you know, directly associated with you. But email-wise, and I don't know if you guys will post it afterwards, jknis at sbcglobal.net. And like I said, I'm happy for people to give me a shout too. Cell phone-wise is 734-645-0267. And the funny thing is, you end up getting some strange texts from <laughs> from people that I heard you say such such, but um, <laughs> it's nice to be able to communicate with people. So always happy for people to reach out. Thank you. All right. Excellent. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jeff. And so that brings us to our last question. What is your best advice for our listeners? I don't want to say loaded question. No. Um, so I like to talk about being pro-pet, pro-client, and pro-team. And basically, I think we're in a positive place with the profession right now, and it, there's a lot of struggles. So part of my, I think, message is we are in a healthy spot. I think the supply and demand, as painful as it is, is putting veterinarians in the veterinary hospital front and center in the eyes of the public. And with that, it's a lot of great opportunities, I think, to increase our compensation and benefits and just overall respect. And we have to handle that carefully because it's hard when somebody can't get into their veterinary. And if we're callous about that, that doesn't look so good. But I think the opportunities out there right now are really fabulous in terms of, you know, the potential to partner with a group to open up a hospital or have some joint ownership without necessarily taking on that financial risk. The opportunity to grow as a technician or front desk administrative person is kind of sky's the limits right now. And I think we're evolving in a healthy direction where hey, you want to go out and own your own practice and, you know, maybe it's getting two or three of your classmates or colleagues that you've worked with for a while and you're not starting out as a one doctor practice. You can have a nice facility and two or three of you kind of going together and, and there's lots of backing, whether it's, you know, angel, <laughs> you know, money or, or bank. So I think the opportunities are fabulous right now and the potential to go into a lot of different aspects of practice management and education are really huge. So 
I think the future is bright in that we're in a good spot, but you know, challenges out there and finding the solutions. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. I greatly appreciate it. My takeaway from this meeting, I don't know why I couldn't memorize your mission statement, but I'm going to say the version <laughs> that I kind of heard. So it's provide the best service and the best medicine while having fun and that it's profitable for everybody. And I think that's really powerful. Thank you. I just try to keep it the KISS rule. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different <laughs> ways to say it, a lot of mission statements. But at the end of the day, you know, if we achieve those things, you know, I think we're doing pretty well. And obviously, it's about best health care and taking care of the pet. But there's a client attached to it or a pet parent, as we like to say. And they can come in all, I don't say shapes and sizes from that standpoint, but there's a lot of different personalities out there. And I think enjoying that relationship is significant instead of getting into the self-talk that this person, da-da-da-da-da, you know, it's easy to get into the gossip mode. I think pets make people better. And so that grumpy client, you know, when you kind of get to know them and stuff, usually isn't such a, you know, a bad person. And so I think the joy of the pet owner is significant too. And when you master that, I think you get a lot better compliance too. So. It's just an interesting profession, no doubt. And I look at you know what the three of us are doing, which is a little different than maybe a lot of everyday veterinarians, but it just goes to show what you can do with a veterinary degree. So a lot of sky's the limits out there. Oh. Yeah, lots of opportunities out there. And we've really enjoyed this conversation today. Thanks so much, Jeff, for sharing your advice and experience. Great. Well, it was enjoyable comparing notes and appreciated the questions. And hopefully I got to answer them effectively for you. I don't know about concisely, but. <laughs> you did great. Thank you. <laughs> if you like this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.